to Lakeshore Update. I'm Dee Dodson. On this edition of the podcast, you'll hear the latest on the consolidation of several Lake County voting precincts. The Indiana Department of Health is concerned about the toll the pandemic is taking on overwhelmed healthcare workers. And Chris Nolte has a conversation with Northwest Indiana Financial Advisor Greg Hammer about the Great Resignation. All of that and more on this edition of Lakeshore Update. An order to consolidate Lake County's voting precincts has been finalized by Secretary of State Holly Sullivan. Indiana law requires the Secretary of State to consider consolidating Lake County precincts with fewer than 600 active voters. The plan cuts Lake County's 364 precincts to 352, with consolidations taking place in Gary, Hammond, Highland, Hobart, Lake Station, St. John, and St. John Township. Only four precincts would change voting locations as a result of the consolidation. Some Hessville residents who currently vote at Harding Elementary School would be moved to Morton High School. Hobart voters who cast their ballots at Ridgeview Elementary will be moved to Genesis Christian Church, while those who currently vote at Boilermakers Local 374 will be moved to Crown of Life Church. Lake Station residents who currently vote at Columbus Park will now cast ballots at the Hobart Township Community Center. Secretary Sullivan says the plan, quote, ensures each polling location is reasonably accessible to each voter, end quote, and was developed with bipartisan input. The consolidation is expected to save the county almost $77,000 over the next four-year election cycle. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Ahead of the 2022 election cycle, could state Republicans have their eyes on the region? Kurt Darling reports on where the GOP is focused. They're focused on northern Indiana, particularly the 1st Congressional District. Indiana GOP Chairman Kyle Hupford tells Indy Politics that they're in a position to play offense in that district. Northwest Indiana, the 1st Congressional District, is in play for the first time. The National Republican Congressional Campaign Committee is putting dollars in it. They've already put a couple ads up. Incumbent Democrat Frank Mervan is seeking re-election there. On the state level, Hupford says the GOP is not worried about losing their supermajority in the state house come 2022. Kirk Darling, Network Indiana. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. Former Portage Mayor James Snyder is being allowed to stay out of prison while he appeals his conviction on bribery and tax evasion charges. A federal judge ruled that Snyder had legitimate issues for appeal and could remain free on bond rather than surrender on January 5th to begin serving a 21-month prison sentence. 
Judge Matthew Kennelly said if Snyder's appeal was successful, it would throw out the prison term that he ordered for Snyder in October. A jury convicted Snyder in March of taking a $13,000 bribe in 2014 in return for steering a $1.1 million city contract for city trucks from a trucking company. Snyder has maintained his innocence. His attorneys argued that the prosecutors did not prove that Snyder and the trucking company owners, quote, made a quid pro quo agreement for awarding the garbage truck contract. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. A ruling by the Indiana Supreme Court has expanded the limited number of people who are eligible to recover damages in lawsuits alleging negligent infliction of emotional distress. The Times reports that in a 3-2 decision released December 22nd, Indiana's High Court says it's now allowing a parent or guardian to seek damages from a child caretaker when the parent or guardian discovers with irrefutable certainty that the caretaker sexually abused their child and that the abuse severely impacted the parent or guardian's emotional health. The new rule arose from a case involving a disabled child's sexual assault by an instructional assistant at a Marion County school. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. It's full steam ahead for a railroad project in northwest Indiana. Network Indiana's Rob Connett reports. The final contracts to double track the South Shoreline between Gary and Michigan City were approved last month. By having two tracks, we can move trains back and forth and we can run express service. We can manage around delays if there's a delay on one train line and we can really open up opportunities to add additional trains. South Shore President Mike Nolan tells Inside Indiana Business the second track is expected to open in 2024. Rob Connett, Network Indiana. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. The old Johnson Inn on Porter Beach is not getting any ready project funds, even though it was mentioned on the list. The Johnson Beach Redevelopment Project, as it's listed, touts itself as a mixed-use development. The project has been withdrawn from consideration because it never should have been submitted in the first place. Michael Berry, Director of Development and Building Commissioner for the Town of Porter, told the Chesterton Tribune that the Town Council and staff heard about the inclusion of the project in Ready after it was publicly announced. The project was not approved by the Council or the Redevelopment Commission, and the Town did not submit an application for the grant. Valparaiso businessman Chuck Williams, the principal partner in Pavilion Partners, is reportedly in line to purchase the old hotel property. Williams renovated the pavilion at the nearby Indiana Dunes State Park in a public-private partnership. The end was built around 1930 with a 30-room hotel and restaurant. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. 
The Better Business Bureau has released a new warning about a new scam through multiple websites. The Bureau says scammers contact people selling items on sites like Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace. They'll ask for your phone number and then send a six-digit verification code to your phone. That code is actually a technique to hack into your Google Voice account. The Bureau says to please read website policies to prevent potential scammers from tricking you into different payment methods and other tactics. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. According to the latest data posted to the Indiana Department of Health's COVID-19 dashboard, Newton and Lake Counties rank number one and number two, respectively, in seven-day positivity rates for COVID-19. Newton County has 22% positivity rate, while Lake County's seven-day rate is 21.9%. Lake County reported 758 new cases as of last Wednesday, its highest single-day increase on record. Porter County has moved from red to orange on the state's map. That means they are still seeing a high spread of the virus, but lower than in last week's map. Lake, Newton, and Jasper counties remain at the red level. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. State health officials are raising the alarm about Indiana's overwhelmed hospitals. Dr. Lindsay Weaver is the chief medical officer for the Indiana Department of Health. She says... The surge is driven by both new COVID-19 hospitalizations as well as Hoosiers who had to delay care because of the pandemic. Our current total hospital census is currently the highest it has been in five years, and we're over 1,500 patients higher than our peak last year. Weaver says the best way to help healthcare workers is to get vaccinated. More than 80% of COVID-19 hospitalizations are unvaccinated Hoosiers. She says prior infection isn't enough. Previous infections may only provide 19% protection against Omicron variant. Bottom line, don't rely on natural immunity to protect you. Weaver also says Hoosiers should not go to emergency rooms seeking COVID-19 testing. There is a shortage of rapid tests in the state, but PCR tests, which require a longer wait for results, but are very accurate, are still available at testing sites. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Indiana healthcare workers are dealing with substantial burnout. That's according to a study conducted by the Regent Street Institute and the Indiana Department of Veteran Affairs. The research team interviewed 40 mental health clinicians and managers from a variety of healthcare centers who were participating in a burnout intervention. One thing experts told Inside Indiana Business is that healthcare, when certain hospital policies get in the way of helping people, they say it undermines their morale and engagement. 
You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. Substance abuse among teens decreased in 2021, according to data from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Indiana Public Broadcasting's Darian Benson reports. Researchers at the University of Michigan surveyed 32,000 teens at more than 300 schools about illicit drug use. This year, 25% fewer teens reported using marijuana, alcohol, or nicotine in the past year, compared to 2020. It's the largest year-to-year drop in teen substance use in the 46 years the survey has been conducted. Lead researcher Richard Miek says the decline is likely due to school closings during the pandemic. If you stick your kid at home all day and you don't let them out, they have much less opportunity to use drugs. Overall, 1 in 10 8th graders, 1 in 5 10th graders, and a third of all 12th graders said they used illicit drugs in the past year. For Indiana Public Broadcasting, I'm Darian Benson. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. National studies show mental health challenges have increased because of the coronavirus pandemic and more so in college-age people. But college counseling centers saw a decline in those seeking services at the same time. The American Psychological Association has conducted annual surveys of mental health since 2007. During the pandemic years, it showed that while all ages of people had increased stress due to COVID-19, numbers were greatest in college-age people. Bill Betts leads Ball State University's Counseling Center. You take that and look at Gen Z, which is our students, 45% of Gen Z adults said they do not know how to manage the stress they feel due to coronavirus, and that's this year, that's this fall. He says, despite that increase, the Center for Collegiate Mental Health at Penn State found that in a national survey, university counseling centers saw a 32% average drop in students seeking help during the fall of 2020. Ball State Center itself saw a 25% decrease. Bet says increased telehealth allowed some college students to stay with their therapists at home. But for others... I actually had some students say this to me. They felt like their concerns weren't serious enough. And so what they said is, look, I didn't get COVID. No one in my family died. And so, yes, I'm suffering and I'm miserable, but I don't want to take a spot from somebody else who really needs this service. Before the pandemic, in 2019, Ball State saw a 40% increase in students wanting help at the beginning of the school year. Betts says the average number of therapy sessions per student also increased. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. A new year, but no new minimum wage in the Hoosier State. Indiana's minimum wage is $7.25 an hour, the same as the federal rate. It's been unchanged for more than a decade. 25 other states, however, are increasing their minimum pay per hour, including nearby Illinois. 
The land of Lincoln will jump to $12 per hour on January 1st. In Chicago, the minimum wage is already $15 an hour for employers that have 21 or more employees and $14 an hour for smaller businesses. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. As we enter the new year, Hoosiers should be ready to think about heading to the ballot box again. Network Indiana's Kurt Darling reports. 2022 is an election year, and Purdue-Fort Wayne political scientist Andy Downs is going to be watching a few races closely. He tells Indy Politics the Senate race for Todd Young's seat should be interesting. His primary challenge may be a little more exciting than than uh, one might think, but I think he should be able to win that and then move into November and get through that relatively easily. Also, with four Republican challengers for state treasurer, Down expects that race to be hotly contested with each candidate getting more personal with voters. Election day is November 8th next year. Kurt Darling, Network Indiana. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. Indiana lawmakers are preparing to handle several big education topics during the next legislative session. Indiana Public Broadcasting's Jenny Lindsay reports what one key policymaker says about possible changes coming in 2022. Some of the hot-button issues talked about at some school board meetings lately have caught state lawmakers' attention, critical race theory included. But instead of banning certain words or phrases from classrooms like some other states have, House Education Committee Chair Bob Baining says he wants to improve parents' access to schools and leave curriculum and other content decisions to local communities. It's really going to be focused on transparency and making sure parents have access to curriculum, um, classroom materials. He says Republicans will also consider legislation making changes to school boards and their elections. Baining also says he wants to revisit talks about how schools might share referendum funding with nearby charter schools. For Indiana Public Broadcasting, I'm Jeannie Lindsay. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. A 15-year-old Michigan high school student killed four of his classmates last month. The tragedy has drawn new attention to the epidemic of gun violence in and around schools. The Violence Project is a nonprofit research center that tracks shootings and threats of violence at schools. Indiana Public Broadcasting's Lee Gaines spoke with the center's co-founder, Jillian Peterson, about the recent increase in violence at schools in Indiana and across the country. So looking at the school shooting data for Indiana, what I saw there was that up until a few years ago, the state had one or two or sometimes no school shootings per year. And then in 2020, there were four. And in 2021, there's already been six reported. I'm curious how Indiana compares to the rest of the country, and are there other places experiencing an increase in both threats and violence? Yeah, we're seeing that everywhere across the country. So 2020 was a bad year in terms of guns fired at school, but if you look at the data, it's really different compared to other years because schools, for the most part, were closed. 
So the violence that was happening at schools was happening on playgrounds, was happening after hours. In many ways, it was sort of an empty place where community violence could take place. Now in 2021, we've seen just record numbers of both shootings at schools and in terms of threats. A lot of the shootings are fights that escalate because people have guns on them. They are occurring both in school, after school, at football games, just sort of an overall record amount of gunfire at schools. And then the threat data is actually really remarkable. We looked at September data for 2018, 2019, 2020. There's about 30 threats of school shootings that make the media per year. This year in 2021, there was over 150 threats. And in just the last week alone, we've tracked another 150 threats. It's just schools are dealing with threats like they've never dealt with before. Wow, that is really remarkable and disturbing data. What do you think is causing this increase? And is it related to the pandemic? You know, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it is. We were feeling concerned about when schools reopen this fall in terms of threats and in terms of violence because of the research that we've done into the risk factors for these mass shootings. So we know risk factors are things like trauma, isolation, suicidality, depression and hopelessness, being in crisis, spending more time on the dark corners of the internet, all things that we knew the pandemic kind of exacerbated. And then on top of that, we saw record gun sales. So we know that there's just more guns that can get into the hands of kids. And we've also seen an increase in everyday violence in our communities throughout the pandemic. There's a number of reasons for that. And that seems to be kind of spilling over onto schools as well. So what should schools be doing to curb the epidemic of violence that's occurring among their students? we put a lot of time and energy into responding and reacting to shootings once they occur. So we run our kids through lockdown drills and we put in bulletproof glass and we put police at the front door and try to sort of react and respond to shootings. But our research shows there are things that we can be doing to actually prevent shootings from happening, right? And that's where we really need to be focusing more of our time and energy and resources. So things like social emotional learning in schools, things like trauma screening, especially for young boys, things like school-based mental health, um, training teachers and all staff in crisis intervention and suicide prevention, building crisis response teams in schools that can assess kids in crisis and get them connected with what they need. So I think schools have to really be thinking about sort of the holistic well-being of the children in that school And things like trauma screening and social-emotional learning and mental health just have to be a key component of that moving forward. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. The widespread of workers leaving their jobs during the COVID-19 pandemic is being called the Great Resignation, and it does not appear to be slowing down. But Northwest Indiana financial advisor Greg Hammer asked the question, is it the right move for you? He recently spoke with Regionally Speaking host Chris Nolte about it, beginning with some recent statistics. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor, um, they reported that 4.4 million Americans quit their jobs in September, which is you know, a record-breaking quits rate, as they call it. So 
um, pretty significant from what we've seen historically. Mm-hmm. Is it a case where at least it turns out that maybe people uh, maybe might be looking for a better opportunity? Maybe they uh, just decided they don't want to work for somebody. They want to work for themselves. So they want to really seriously uh, delve into entrepreneurship or maybe even go into early retirement. You know, I, we've been looking into it quite a bit, and I think it's a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. I, I think some of the new parameters around some of the health challenges and the risks have, have created some new thought processes about, you know, whether I want to go to work or, or work for myself or work from home and, you know, prioritizing different things. And, and then, you know, maybe just looking, you know, in terms of, you know, what the opportunity might be given the environment. But, you know, I think people really just need to kind of understand why they want to quit. Right. Because one of the things that we find is, you know, if you don't have any kind of passion or purpose, you know, let's say you receive a windfall, you know, people will tend to overspend. And, you know, so when you're looking at potentially just walking away from a job, you know, ask the question why and, you know, where, where, what is it that I'm looking to do and, and you know, to avoid the overspending by motivating yourself to, you know, stay at a job until you secure your next career move could be critical and, you know, and whether or not you, you really begin to disrupt the plan that you have for retirement. I guess it really, it means motivation. You've got to really be motivated either to stay on a job because uh, unless you know you're secure to be able to make that career move, right? Yeah, and, you know, it's so tough because I, I think, you know, there's a lot of things, Chris, that's going on that, you know, to be quite honest, I don't know if I could fully explain, but you know, how close to your retirement, I think, given the the given situation with the risks and the health, I, I think it's forced a lot of people to really say, hey, instead of being one, two, three, four years out, I'm going to consider retiring now. Um, the challenge with that, you know, a decision to leave a job can have a significant result on their nest egg. If your current age and what you expected retirement age was, you know, the initial groundwork for an effective retirement strategy, you know, changing those time horizons um, can often, you know, create challenges on the portfolio, additional stress, um, you know, things like inflation, tax changes have a bigger impact. And then also, you know, as you get into your career down the path, you you generally are going to have the type of relationships and skill sets that, you know, could apply for more earning potential and leaving the market at that potential time in the process could be very costly um, to the retirement picture. What seems to be uh, the, if there's an age, and there may not be an age because everybody, of course, is different, but what would be the age that maybe some people think that they may want to be able to resign and go into retirement? Well, I, we've always looked at one of the critical logical thinking patterns, and that is, you know, when and how I will address the insurance, because right. the medical insurance is obviously, you know, one of the big challenges. So typically a great benchmark for most is Medicare, unless they have the opportunity to continue a group plan, you know, through some of the unions, through some of the mills, through some of the other programs that would allow them to maintain coverage through a company program, and or, you know, COBRA getting them to that Medicare age. Prior to that, I just think you carry a lot more risk, because medical expenses, you know, can usually grow at a lot, a rate a lot faster than you know most of our inflationary expenses. 
We're talking with Northwest Indiana Financial Advisor Greg Hammer, uh, dealing into the uh, some of the ideas behind uh, what is uh, now being termed nationally as the Great Resignation. People that are leaving their jobs uh, because of the, during the pandemic, at least because of uh, whatever reason it may be, and then deciding to, to go off in another direction. But the question still comes down to, and we're looking into it as to whether it's the right move to make. And and we talked before about this topic about uh, being sure that you have enough money set aside to be able to to retire. But when you talk about the great resignation, you've got to definitely be sure that you can handle all of your expenses and make sure that you have that emergency savings available, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of us don't even have the cash reserves because of some of the, you know, just the the cost of, you know, the things we need to do daily, not only for our families, but for ourselves and for other, you know, situations that we have passion about. So, you know, not having the emergency savings or exhausting those emergency savings, I mean, the Going into debt can be crippling, and and that's one of the things you want to try to avoid, especially kind of like, you know, on the on the verge of going into a retirement, and you know, can you truly afford not working for an extended period of time? You know, there, it's important to understand what those long term financial implications of quitting a job would be for you, and often when individuals make this decision, they're strictly thinking in the here and now. And, you know, can I live off my savings now? Can I live off of one income now? But they're not really understanding, you know, the some of the factors in uh, retirement like inflation, you know, taxes, health care costs, potential long-term care costs, risk volatility, all the things that, you know, create that, um, you know, kind of that uncertainty, the unpredictability of moving forward and, you know, do I have enough? not just in today's dollars, but the future dollars that I'm going to have to have to, to cover all those increase in costs from inflation and just general expenses as we get older. Well, and also, too, don't you lose out on, on the the, comp, the compound interest that you might be able to earn on what's been invested uh, because you're going to be counting on that eventually sometime or another for, uh, for, for income, in the future at least. Absolutely. I mean, time value, we've talked about that a lot, is, you know, Obviously, one of the direct things when you talk about the time value of money and how it's compounding, how it's growing, is given it the time horizon. And, you know, one of the, the challenges that you have is if you shorten that time horizon by either not working, right, and may need the money, so now you're on a short-term time horizon or retiring earlier, generally you're going to want to accept less risk with your accounts as well, which are going to typically result in, you know, less results when it comes to the growth of your portfolio because you just can't assume the volatility. But when you look at, you know, interest over a 10-year time horizon versus a 30-time horizon, $100 a month at 8%, you're talking difference between 17000 and upwards of a 136000 Wow. You know, so pretty significant dollar differences when it comes to, you know, the power of uh, deferral and the power of compound interest. That was Regionally Speaking host Chris Nolte speaking with Northwest Indiana Financial Advisor Greg Hammer. Regionally Speaking with host Chris Nolte can be heard each Monday through Thursday at 11 a.m. on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM and streaming online at lakeshorepublicradio.org where you can also find podcasts of the show when you click on the program link. For the latest in local news and information, tune in Monday at 6 a.m. for Morning Edition with local host 
Chris Nolte. Lakeshore Update is supported by the listeners and members of Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM. Podcasts for Lakeshore Update are posted each Friday on our website, lakeshorepublicradio.org, as well as on NPR One. Make sure you search for WLPR and select us as your home station. Music for Lakeshore Update was written and produced by bensound.com. For Lakeshore Update, I'm Dee Dotson. Thank you.